Welcome to the Novel Romantics podcast series at the America Centrum Hamburg. I'm the host of Novel Romantics, Douglas Cowie. I'm a writer and teacher. For this special episode, we'll be celebrating the 100th anniversary of the birth of American novelist Kurt Vonnegut, who was born on 11th November 1922. We'll be discussing Vonnegut's most famous novel, Slaughterhouse-Five, and my guest today is Wieland Schwanebeck. Wieland Schwanebeck is a researcher in literary and cultural studies. He's held positions at the University of Dresden and Mannheim. His fields of research include imposter characters, gender and masculinity studies, British film history, and adaptation studies. His most recent publications include Literary Twinship from Shakespeare to the Age of Cloning, 2020, The Reclam Introduction to James Bond, 2021, and Comedy on Stage and Screen, an Introduction, 2022. His first stage comedy, Slapstick, premiered at the Gerhard Hauptmann Theater in 2021. It shares its title, though not much else, with a novel by Kurt Vonnegut. Welcome, Wieland! Hi, Doug, and thanks for having me. Very happy to be talking to you. Very great to have you here. Thanks. Yeah, thank you for coming. Uh, before we start talking about the novel, I'd like to inform listeners that the America Centrum Hamburg has also organized a virtual Vonnegut celebration via Zoom on November 19 from 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Central European time. It'll be hosted by today's guest, Dr. Wieland Schwanebeck, um, and it features a specialist panel, including Vonnegut biographer Charles J. Shields and Jan Christian Peterson. Um, if you'd like to learn even more about Vonnegut, please register for the virtual event via our website, americatcentrum.de. That's americatcentrum.de. The registration information also appears in the podcast description, so you don't have to rely on trying to transcribe what I'm saying. You can just read it in the podcast description. So as I said, today we're going to discuss Vonnegut's 1969 novel, Slaughterhouse-Five, or to give it its full title, Slaughterhouse-Five or the Children's Crusade, A Duty Dance with Death. The novel is Vonnegut's uh, attempt to write a book about the firebombing of Dresden in the Second World War, which is an event that he experienced uh, firsthand as a, as a prisoner of war in, in Germany at the end of the war. And so we'll be talking about that quite a bit. But before we turn directly to the novel, I just wanted to ask Philan, how did you first come across the work of Kurt Vonnegut? Well, my guess is um, I came across uh, Vonnegut the first time most people or most avid readers of Vonnegut come across him. That is in high school, uh, mm. not because a teacher assigns the book to you, but because for some reason you, I don't know, someone recommends it to you or, you know, it's whispered to you like a secret <laughs> from elsewhere. <laughs> I, I suppose if you had a great English teacher, then maybe your English teacher recommended it to you. Mine didn't, but uh, what, what got me hooked on Vonnegut when I tried to trace it back was a film review, strangely enough, because in, I believe, early or mid-1999, I would have been 15 years old at the time, the film adaptation of Breakfast of Champions was released uh, in cinemas. And I read a review of that film, which to this day I haven't seen, but it sounded so wonderfully idiosyncratic. It sounded so so bizarre, but also so funny. I couldn't find a cinema within you know, walking distance or within public transport distance from me to screen that film so i did the next best thing i you know went out and bought the book that the, the film was based on that's why to this day i have it in front of me right now i have a really ugly bright yellow edition of breakfast of champions which says now a major major motion picture starring bruce willis <laughs> uh, <laughs> i don't know whether that's a good recommendation i don't know as i said i haven't for? seen the film <laughs> I haven't seen the film to this day. It never got a release on streaming platforms, as far as I can tell. The only thing I found recently was a really shitty-looking DVD, which makes the film look <laughs> like a, a sequel to The Whole Nine Yards or something like that. Anyway, but but I, I, I bought the book. I love the book. And, you know, 
took it from there, read more Kurt Vonnegut novels over the next couple of years, and had my first proper encounter with Slaughterhouse-Five the year after that, I believe, when I actually volunteered to do a book report on it in class. But that's maybe another story. So yeah, it all started uh, with a film review and this really ugly yellow edition of Breakfast of Champions. <laughs> that's a great... That's a, that's a great story. My mine is kind of my story is kind of similar, though more straightforward, I suppose. I was about the same age, actually, fifteen. I was a sophomore in high school, and a friend of mine read Slaughterhouse Five and had his mind blown by it. Um, my friend Dan, and so he told me you got to read this book, and so I read the book and had my mind blown by it, and um, and then read loads and loads more Vonnegut. I asked him the other day how he came across it in the first place, and it was from a friend who had read it, how she got a hold of it, I don't know. But she was a, a very literary person, I suppose. And she'd read it and said, you got to read this. And so, and then, I mean, I probably read most of Vonnegut's novels over the next, I want to say year or two, probably not much more than that. By the time I'd finished high school, I think I'd read pretty much everything I could get my hands on. And I've read Slaughterhouse Five twice in that time because I ended up I didn't I wasn't given it by a teacher but I had a teacher who let me write an essay about it so um, it wasn't all it wasn't all a bad education but I think it, it seems to be like maybe I don't know maybe there's something about being a 15 year old boy but Kurt Vonnegut is I suppose one thing that's good about like being a teenager and you read this and you think this is this is literature but it's also silly it's funny it's sometimes you know lascivious I don't know. Um, it's a, it's a good introduction to literature for a teenager, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking of the same thing when I reread this a couple of weeks ago, because it's you know, such a gateway to other things. Not that you would necessarily look at, at Vonnegut as a gateway to to other and better writers, but mm. certainly much much of the you know postmodern literary traffic kind of crosses through that novel. And as I was rereading it, and as I was underlining stuff, I, I was thinking, oh, wow, this is this is like Martin Amos, whom I wouldn't have read nor understood at age 15. Yeah. And, and yeah. Th this paragraph is really great if you then go on or encourage to check out Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy even, right? Mm -hmm. The jokes are great, and it's always coming at you with surprises. And it's also a wonderfully adolescent book in a way, also in a heartbreaking way, I guess. So yeah, I imagine it's not the kind of book that you fall in love with because the teacher assigns it to you. You kind of have to discover it for yourself. You have to have it recommended to you. Having said that, I know also the, the exception to the rule, as it were, uh, because there was this uh, recent Vonnegut documentary, Unstuck in Time, oh, yeah. uh, and the man who made it, Robert Whitey, he actually tells his own story in that film. And actually his teacher in high school assigned Vonnegut to them, and he fell in love oh, reading great. Vonnegut as a school assignment. I, I think teacher. the story even is, she asked, him back, she asked him back once he graduated to teach a sophomore class on Vonnegut himself when he oh, was man. something like 21 years old. <laughs> That's, that's like both a dream and a nightmare all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, 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 as, as, you, as you said in the introduction, I'm a literary studies person, but my, my, I'm, I specialize in British literature mainly. I never dealt with Vonnegut professionally. I never wrote mm. an analysis of Vonnegut. I never uh, assigned Vonnegut to any of my students in my class. I'm not a fan of the general theory that you shouldn't teach favorites, that you shouldn't, you know, share your love of literature in class this with this immediacy i've, I've always taught mm. favorites but then again it would never have occurred to me to do this with a vonnegut novel I, I wouldn't have known where to start and i wouldn't actually don't know whether i would have whether it would have been a great experience for students to come at this from a very analytical angle instead of just appreciating it for what it is i want to recommend his books to every young person that i meet 
but I'm not sure I want to encourage them to, you know, to, to, to probe this or to, you know, apply psychoanalytic theory to it or something like that. But maybe that's just a personal feeling. It's interesting you say that because um, cause I was kind of thinking the same thing. Like I've never taught Slaughterhouse-Five. I did study it in my um, master's degree. And I found it actually really difficult, especially having read it like two or three times by that point in my life and loved it in the ways that we've already been talking about. I found it really difficult to study in that environment. It was on a postmodern literature course. And I had to give a present. I thought, oh, I'll, I'll give a presentation on Slaughterhouse Five because I've already read it and I love it. And I, you know, and then I reread it to, with a view to creating this presentation. I just had no idea what the hell to say about it. <laughs> and I and I tried really hard and eventually I just I kind of I wouldn't say I gave up, but I I decided I just couldn't do exactly what you were just talking about. Like, oh, here's this lens. Here's this academic lens I can put over this novel and and impress my, you know, postgraduate seminar group with my erudition or something. And I just sort of mm-hmm. just went for it and said, like, that's not what this novel is for. And that's not like, you know, I can discuss the motifs and the themes, but I don't think that's what Vonnegut wants you to do with this novel and I kind of gave this real heartfelt and far too short speech and the professor just sort of rolled her eyes at me and was like, yeah, well, we still got to talk about those things. <laughs> um, and I did end up, in, in fact, writing an essay about about it in relation to um, Martin Amos, who you've already mentioned, and Flan O'Brien. But again, not my best work. I don't think it, I don't <laughs> think it brings out the best in me as far as my academic abilities, but it does bring out the best of, of a lot of other things. And maybe that's a, a good way of just turning now our attention to the, some of the specifics of the book. And I guess the first thing to really acknowledge is that the novel, so the novel tells the story of Billy Pilgrim, a U.S. Army chaplain or chaplain's assistant. He's about the lowest rung of soldier you can imagine. I mean, he doesn't even get issued with a gun, who kind of gets sent over to Europe towards the end of the Second World War, is a, is a hopeless soldier in every way. Um, becomes a prisoner of war, and uh, during his time as a prisoner of war, experiences the firebombing of Dresden by the British and American air forces. But then, uh, and the way the story starts, is he becomes what Vonnegut narrates as unstuck in time. And he travels around uh, to different parts of his life, experiencing them multiple times and always knowing what's going to happen to him, but not living his life chronologically. And this includes getting married, having children, um, his wife dying, him being hospitalized, lots of various events, including his own assassination. He becomes a very successful optometrist, but he ends up getting assassinated. And crucially, it also involves him being abducted by aliens from the planet Trelfamador, who explained to him the secret of, of how to understand time from, the, from their point of view and how they experience time uh, in their lives on their planet and, and their way of being. That's a lot of stuff to pack into. It is a very short novel, and it's a novel that's presented as a, a war novel. The title Slaughterhouse-Five comes from the place where, where the prisoners of war were kept. They were, they were housed in a slaughterhouse in, in Dresden. And the first chapter of this novel is very self, I guess, autobiographical, self-reflexive, I was going to say, a kind of autobiographical explanation or a, I suppose, um, a metafictional explanation of the author, Kurt Vonnegut, trying to write this book about Dresden. And and I guess that's the first thing that we should discuss is, is how that opening chapter works and why this story that's about other things 
starts with with an author talking about how to write a book. Yeah, what I only realized when when I was looking at this book again was I was kind of putting the the, the chronology of Vonnegut together as I was doing so. I had read most of his books in my teens and early 20s but not in chronological order. I kind of, you know, skipped from one to the other. I think I had a vague recollection that uh, Slaughterhouse-Five was written in the 1960s, but it is also a kind of, you know, personal summary of what Vonnegut has done up to this point. Because some characters whom you might recognize from earlier Vonnegut novels pop in, pop up for a short cameo in that book. And in a way, it's, it's very tempting to link this to kind of the gesticulation period, you know, for of how long it took him to come to terms with that experience in Dresden, you know, setting pen to paper and finding, you know, what would be the right iteration of that book. And he talks about that, right? He said he tried doing it, he tried doing this in a very autobiographical fashion, using a first-person narrative voice, then experimenting with third-person narrative account, going through different characters, different titles, different names. And I think the the most fundamental thing that happens is, in a way, which links the book to this plot development you talked about, uh, you know, getting unstuck in time and trail Famador, because that experience of being able to go from one moment in your life to another, realizing it's all already written down, you can't change anything. This, of course, also impacts the way the book is written because it's it's very hard to 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 arrive at a kind of chronological you know linear sequence of events we hop from one episode to the other and that also i I would imagine liberates vonnegut when it comes to writing that book because it was obviously a traumatizing experience to be there in dresden throughout the firebombing and then you know walking through that city for weeks after that digging up human bodies and of course if you know one thing about trauma it's you know it kind of messes with chronology it is that thing that you keep returning to in circular fashion and the book kind of does the same it's a very light-hearted i'm almost tempted to say a very funny way of rendering trauma in literature and himself writing vonnegut writing himself into that story and kind of not writing himself into that story is certainly part of the deal uh, so I, I'm not sure. That, I'm not sure the book would look entirely different if he had decided to make himself the main character in the book, but he probably wouldn't have been able to write that book. Yeah, he says. I mean, right on page two of the novel, he says, "I would hate to tell you what this lousy little bo- book cost me in money and anxiety and time. When I got home from the Second World War 23 years ago, I thought it would be easy for me to write about the destruction of Dresden, since all I would have to do would be to report what I had seen. And I thought, too, that it would be a masterpiece, or at least make me a lot of money, since the subject was so big. But not many words about Dresden came from my mind then, not enough of them to make a book anyway, and not many words come now either, when I had become an old fart with his memories and his palmals, with his son's full groan. I think of how useless the Dresden part of my memory has been, and yet how tempting Dresden has been to write about. And I am reminded of the famous limerick. There was a young man from Stamboul who soliloquized thus to his tool. You took all my wealth and you ruined my health and now you won't pee, you old fool. What's interesting is that he, there's this trauma and the, the kind of fragmented circling around that you, that you mentioned and that the fact that he can't seem to put a meaning to something that has happened. I, I read something this morning. Stupidly, I forgot to write down. I wrote down the, the quotation, but not the person who wrote it. It's a Bosnian poet 
called his first name was Farouk, and I've totally blanked on his second name. But at any rate, he wrote chronological time stops ticking during war. We wore watches on our wrists, but they showed a meaningless time. We were cut off from the rest of our country in the civilized world. We were five hours drive from Vienna, at least before the war. Now we lived as if we were at the end of the world. So time was irrelevant. A new time was ticking inside us. The one you count from the moment your idyllic civic life collapses and you become a refugee. After the first moments of shock, we were quick to embrace the apocalyptic way of life. And I thought this was a fascinating thing in relation, you know, I was, it was very serendipitous that I came across it today when we were preparing to record this conversation, because it struck me as a great way of, of describing what's happening in Slaughterhouse-Five, that he's experienced this event that has happened in a way that isn't chronological to him. And then the re- Billy Pilgrim or Kurt Vonnegut, both of them really, and in the novel, Billy Pilgrim then experiences the attempt to try and understand this. All those civilized, all that civilized world that this writer talks about is happening not chronologically. But Vonnegut has actually narrated the, the traumatic part, the the end of the war and the firebombing fire of the city chronologically. It's the only part that runs chron- chronologically mm-hmm. in the novel. Everything else jumps around. So curiously, he's turned the experience inside out for narrative purposes and made a chronology and dechronologized all the so-called civilized things as a way of, I suppose, um, mirroring or or reflecting the the experience, but also of finally trying to find a way to put words together that aren't useless, that can try and piece together what this experience is. I was wondering about that same thing because it's it's curiously at odds in a way with the otherwise jumbled chronology of the book to mm-hmm. actually put the climax at the end or, or almost the very end of the book mm-hmm. right that's 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 almost a very classical thing to do but of course it resonates with Vonnegut's own attempt to kind of postpone the narration of that right in a way him giving you this very lengthy first chapter about you know trying to come to terms with Dresden how to write that how you can't say anything intelligent about a massacre I think is how he puts it at one point mm-hmm. uh, everything that ca- kind of pushes the Dresden problem away for yet another chapter and yet another chapter and I think on that level it makes sense elsewhere of course it makes more sense to to look for the way Vonnegut deconstructs classical plotting and classical war plotting I mean there's this repeated dig uh, I think that also is in the first chapter in this uh, episode where he talks to his old war body and that war body's wife mm-hmm. um, where he basically makes a decision a conscious decision not to write this as a John Wayne movie and I'm not sure to what extent he had actually made plans for a more conventional novel but I was browsing through that great volume of Kurt Vonnegut's letters the other day again uh, and there are a couple of interesting ones from the mid-60s as he was writing Slaughterhouse-Five. Because at one point he wrote to his publisher, I believe, the year would have been something like 66. Um, he says something like, I've been trying to write Kirk Douglas into my war book again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had to cross him out because the war I saw wasn't really a Kirk Douglas movie. Uh, I don't think he cites Kirk Douglas in a novel. He talks about John Wayne, you know, how <laughs> this is going to be another John Wayne plot. But it's certainly not that. <laughs> not in any sense of the word because john wayne that's well the epitome of the you know grown-up man who you know never questions his own masculinity and on the other hand john wayne is the epitome of linear storytelling right you go ahead you deal with the problem that's in front of you you dispose of that problem and you move on to the next problem there's yeah. no flashback there's no introspection 
there is certainly no self-consciousness or any doubt about how that story should be told. And Vonnegut is all is all of these things. He does all of these things in Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah, I was going to say he's he both. I think both Vonnegut and certainly the character Billy Pilgrim are like they're all consciousness and all self-consciousness about what they experience. Uh, that there's a constant reflection of what does this mean going on that often gets stymied because things don't always mean things, but um, which is something we might come to as, as we discuss further, I wanted to bring up two things in relation to what you were just talking about in this first chapter. The first, the, the passage about John Wayne, this is when he's at his war buddy's house and the wife has been glaring at him all evening as they start to talk about things. And um, the passage goes like this. It says, then she turned to me, let me see how angry she was and that the anger was for me. She had been talking to herself. So what she said was a fragment of a much larger conversation. You were just babies then, she said. What? I said. You were just babies in the war, like the ones upstairs. I nodded that this was true. We had been foolish virgins in the war right at the end of childhood. But you're not going to write it that way, are you? This wasn't a question. It was an accusation. I, I don't know, I said. Well, I know, she said. You'll pretend you were men instead of babies, and you'll be played in the movies by Frank Sinatra and John Wayne or some of those other glamorous, war-loving, dirty old men. And war will look just wonderful, so you'll have a lot more of them. And they'll be fought by babies like the babies upstairs. Earlier, just be- like 10 pages before that, he-, he outlines his idea to his buddy of the what he thinks is the climax of this story, and introduces a character who I think is really fascinating, a minor character called Ed, Edgar Derby. He says, I think the climax of the book will be the execution of poor old Edgar Derby, I said. The irony is so great. Whole city gets burned down and thousands and thousands of people are killed. And then this one American foot soldier is arrested in the ruins for taking a teapot and he's given a regular trial and then he's shot by a firing squad. Um said O'Hare. His buddy's totally unimpressed by this idea. And what's interesting is that Edgar Derby gets mentioned many, many times in this novel, and he's almost always poor old Edgar Derby. So you know his fate the whole time. You're always looking at his fate. And this thing that is supposed to be the climax in the in the author's conception of the novel ends up becoming a refrain instead. It's, not, it's never a climactic moment. And you never actually see it you see glimpses of it and parts of it, but you never actually see this execution. It just gets talked about secondhand, so to speak. And I went, I don't know if I, I suppose I, was, I should be asking a question on the back of that, but <laughs> I don't know what you think about how these pieces fit together and into that, into that anti John Wayne kind of rubric, I suppose. Yeah. Because I mean, Edgar Derby is one example. We also have, you know, poor old or you know as he puts it fat and stupid Roland weary, weary to talk about yeah. it it is in a way it is one of these ensemble pieces like you know the, the people you knew back in the army memories of the war but again it, it's none of these things because they never really exist as heroic characters who get their say in the course of the story and as you said you know we always circle around what becomes of Edgar Derby I'm always a little bit reluctant to talk about his fate because one could makes it clear t- time and time again that there is no such thing as fate mm, yeah. there's just these 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 absurd little episodes of war that don't really amount to anything you cannot learn anything from that neither from the firebombing nor from the fact that edgar derby is shot for stealing a teapot in dresden cannot learn anything from the fact 
that they're pushed into these train carriages and some of them make it and others do not. So in a way, he always presents this Trafamadorian view of things very matter-of-factly, which is, again, again I, I guess, a mechanism of, of self-protection. Yeah, so you've, you've just hit right into like, we've, we've, I think we've arrived at a certain crux of this novel, which is this, this we need to talk about Trafamadorian attitudes and time and, and why this is so important. And he says right, the, right at the end of the last, uh, excuse me, of the first chapter, he says, people aren't supposed to look back. I'm certainly not going to do it anymore. I finished my war book now. The next one I write is going to be fun. This one is a failure, and it had to be since it was written by a pillar of salt. It begins like this. Listen, Billy Pilgrim has become, has come unstuck in time. It ends like this. Pooty wheat. This idea of looking back, you know, which he's taken from from the Bible of of Lot's wife looking back and being turned into a a, a pillar of salt at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But he calls himself a pillar of salt because he's looked back. And the, the act of trying and trying and trying to understand this incomprehensible thing has, has ruined him as a, you know, as a human, seems to be what he's saying to me there. And then that turns into, well, what's the, what's the way out of that? And the way out of that becomes, you know, so it goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit tempting here to 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 make more of Vonnegut in the in the context of comedy and to look at him as a kind of jester figure, which I think mm -hmm. subconsciously I've always done. That's part of the reason why we're fascinated with Vonnegut at, at age fifteen because he's you know he, he he plays the fool, but of course like a like a true, true Shakespearean, he plays a very smart fool. And that means being. I was going to say much, this is a good way for you to um, plug your Shakespeare. Being very much attached to the here and now, <laughs> to the material condition. Uh, of, of humanity and being a jester in a way i guess prevents you from looking back or being a jester means that you you don't you don't historicize things you refuse to look into these you know great narratives of sense making or these great sense making operations the jester makes his jokes being in the here and now when you look closer when you look at some of the more tragic gestures in shakespeare you realize that's also a strategy for survival because mm -hmm. they are very often the most the most heart wrenching, the most broken characters in these plays, and to a certain degree, I think this applies to Vonnegut. Because I hadn't realized until I looked at this into this now, you know how long it must have taken for him to you know come to terms is probably the wrong expression, but you know to to find the words to match to the experience. And if you look at that documentary, Unstuck in Time, which was out last year, uh, there was one little nugget of information that really resonated with me. Um, one of his daughters, I believe, talks about him in that documentary and says, reading Slaughterhouse-Five, or when she read Slaughterhouse-Five, this was actually the first time that she found out anything about her dad and Dresden. So imagine that throughout the 50s, throughout the 60s, he had never, ever, you know, tried to find words for that experience, even talking to his family, right? So it's only through that very, <laughs> very much mediated mm -hmm. um fictionalized and of course totally jumbled chronology uh, of slaughterhouse five that the family finds out what that man went through and even then he makes a joke of it yeah and maybe Trelfamador, you know going that di diversion via Trelfamador is the only way he could have done that 
yeah, what does Trelfamador add to the novel then? A twisted sense of chronology and a philosophical worldview? Um, is it all of these and more? I mean, what do you make of that planet? Yeah. <laughs> um, I was, I was about to say, I'm the one who asks the questions on this show, but I guess that's not true. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. Um, well, you've, you've played a, a great segue for me because I've got two passages open about that. I mean, the fact is, Trelfamador is partly that gesture, that, that gesture role that you've, that you've explicated for us. And it's, you know, it, it is partly fun. Like, you know, Trelfamador, this is one of these recurring motifs from the, the Vonnegut universe, as you might think of it in the kind of today's terms, like all these different characters and things from other Vonnegut novels make appearances in this one, none more important than, than the, the creatures of Trelfamador and their, and their planet, which first appears in the Sirens of Titan, which is another Vonnegut novel I reread not that long ago and, and thought, wow, this novel's just as great as I thought it was when I was a teenager. But here's what Billy Pilgrim says about the Trelfamadorians. Um, they teach him to understand his unstuckness in time, really. He says, the most important thing I learned on Trelfamador was that when a person dies, he only appears to die. He is still very much alive in the past, so it is very silly for people to cry at his funeral. All moments, past, present, and future, have always existed, always will exist. The Trelfamadorians can look at all the different moments just the way we can look at a stretch of the Rocky Mountains, for instance. They can see how permanent all the moments are, and they can look at any moment that interests them. It is just an illusion we have here on Earth that one moment follows another one, like beads on a string, and that once a moment is gone, it is gone forever. When a Trelfamadorian sees a corpse, all he thinks is that the dead person is in a bad condition in that particular moment, but that the same person is just fine in plenty of other moments. Now when I myself hear that somebody is dead, I simply shrug and say what the Trelfamadorians say about dead people, which is so it goes. I mean, this I find this outlook quite difficult to get to grips with, even now, because it's at times it feels really kind of nihilistic that he's saying like, you know, none of this really matters it's just a thing and you move on and it feels very much like trauma you know like you're just trying to efface emotion because because the emotion that you've gone through is too traumatic to to face it'll turn you into a pillar of salt but at the same time it offers um and in other moments in the novel and i think it bounces between these even within the confines of the novel it, it offers a real tremendously comforting way of trying to understand your experience that that you instead of looking in the way that that billy pilgrim or that humans look according to Trelfamadorians, which i'm going to um, describe in a moment you suddenly have this bigger perspective on what the the shape of a life or of all life is and the shape of the meaning that you can give to it and the understanding that you can bring and that i think what vonnegut might eventually call I'm putting words in his mouth now, but um, he's not here to stop me. Uh, might call a kind of love, a, a real humanistic love for for one's life, and and it puts it into a kind of, of shape. That view is is played against what. So Billy's kidnapped by the Trelfamadorians and put into a zoo. The Trelfamadorians come and watch him live with a. Well, for a time he lives with a porn star in this in this zoo enclosure and people come and gawp at them and try to understand what their life is like. And this is, this is a, a zoo guide describing 
how Billy and how earthlings understand time. It says the guide invited the crowd to imagine that they were looking across a desert at a mountain range on a day that was twinkling bright and clear. They could look at a peak or a bird or a cloud at a stone right in front of them, or even down into a canyon behind them. But among them was this poor earthling and his head was encased in a steel sphere, which he could never take off. There was only one eye hole through which he could look and welded to that eye hole were six feet of pipe. This was only the beginning of Billy's miseries in the metaphor. He was also strapped to a steel lattice, which was bolted to a flat car on rails, and there was no way he could turn his head or touch the pipe. The far end of the pipe rested on a bipod, which was also bolted to the flat car. All Billy could see was the little dot at the end of the pipe. He didn't know he was on a flat car, didn't even know that there was anything peculiar about his situation. The flat car sometimes crept, sometimes went extremely fast, often stopped, went uphill, downhill, around curves, along straightaways. Whatever poor Billy saw through the pipe, he had no choice but to say to himself, that's life. I mean, this is Vonnegut rewriting Plato's simile of the cave from Republic and putting it into a, a new context, a Tralfamadorian context. And I guess it's the contrast of those outlooks I, I, I find fascinating and ultimately comforting, I suppose. I don't know where, where you land on this. First of all, I love the the section on Trothamador because this is the, these chapters are where Vonnegut writes some of the best jokes oh, yeah. <laughs> that are in the yeah. book. I mean, Vonnegut's really satirical. Some of the details had totally escaped me un- until I reread them. The, the idea that they kind of do this natural history, your sim- natural history museum simulation of what life on Earth would be like. They they give him a TV set, I believe, but because they can't get it running on Trelthamador, they paste a picture of a cowboy <laughs> yeah. onto the tube, which is again another uh, another dig at John Wayne and and, and the Western, of course. The idea that they have one one novel in English, which they give Billy or what they, which they put in the bookshelf to simulate, you know, what 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 life on Earth is like, uh, and that the novel is by Jacqueline Susan, who, by the way, I checked this the other day, was number one on the bestseller list in 1969 mm-hmm. when uh, when Slaughterhouse Five came out. You know, what are the odds? So, so I love the section for that, uh, and the idea that Trafamadorians, I believe accidentally trigger the end of the universe uh, eventually of course this very much you know paves the way for for douglas adams and mm-hmm. the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy a couple of years later which of course starts with the not quite accidental but certainly uh, absurd obliteration of, of planet earth when it comes to formulating a philosophical creed i'm maybe a little more reluctant to to to, to put a label on it because you know when you when you accept the idea that uh, the fool, the jester, for lack of a better word, formulates a creed or becomes this kind of spiritual guide in a way. Yes, I, I see the attraction of that. On the other hand, it's a bit like that that bit in Life of Brian uh, where <laughs> the guy who's most reluctant to lead, you know, to, to, to lead a spiritual congregation uh, reminding his audience that they're all individuals ends up being the one who strips them of their individuality. Yeah. And I think Vonnegut is such a fundamentally anti-authoritarian writer that it becomes a little hard for me to embrace this idea, you know, there's a philosophy that we should embrace or that there's a kind of fully formulated creed that's that's in the novel. I mean, 
Cat's Cradle is the is the Vonnegut novel, which which probably uh, is most pertinent in that respect, because that is of course a book where he, where he formulates a completely faux religion mm-hmm. uh, based on the writings of, of some guy, the Book of Bokonon. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, what it reminded me as well of is. Uh, you know, absurdism, uh, fundamentally, the idea that you don't apply reason, the idea that you accept from the moment of birth, the fact that we all have to die, and that you can, on the one hand, have this be your reason for despair, you know, mm-hmm. of course, from the moment we're born, we all know that we have to become extinct one day, or that we have to perish one day, you know, so why bother? Why aspire to anything? Or on the other hand, to have to have this become your reason or your motivation to make something of the time that you have, uh, and to be kind and to you know enjoy life. I don't think uh, Slaughterhouse Five is very explicit on that front, because it still offers a very bleak outlook on the human condition. At least that, that's the way I read it now. But it certainly offers hints of that. You know. Also, maybe resonating with Vonnegut's own reluctance to apply reason and to speculate about, you know, destiny uh, and all of that. Uh, so, I, I guess that that would be one one aspect where the novel would have been popular for a kind of popular version of existentialist philosophy in the late '60s and '70s, mm-hmm. before absurdism really caught on in popular culture and was, you know. You know, Tarantino films or Martin McDonough plays, they're full of that. And yeah. I think there's a kernel of, of, of common sense that runs through all of them. Yeah. After he's after he's kidnapped, he, asks, he says, uh, this is what happens. Welcome aboard, Mr. Pilgrim, said the loudspeaker. Any questions? Billy licked his lips, thought for a while, inquired at last. Why me? That's a very earthling question to ask, Mr. Pilgrim. Why you? Why us for that matter? Why anything? Because this moment simply is. Have you ever seen Bugs Trapped in Amber? Yes, Billy, in fact, had a paperweight in his office, which was a blob of polished amber with three ladybugs embedded in it. Well, here we are, Mr. Pilgrim, trapped in the amber of this moment. There is no why. This gets echoed um, later on in the novel by Billy and a, excuse me, not Billy, uh, just an anonymous soldier and a, and a German guard who the, the soldier gets pulled out and beaten. And um, the he says, why me? And the guard says, why you? Why anybody? Um, so it's it, you get two different versions of it there. The the horrific war based one, but told very simply. He always tells his war stories just as simply as everything else. And the slightly more absurdist, slight, you know, comedic version um, that happens to Billy when he's kidnapped. I just totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> You were talking about the uh, the little you know chorus, little refrain that runs through the novel. So it goes, uh, yeah. and of course that has become kind of the tagline for <laughs> for 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 lovers of Vonnegut. Mm. My I, dad I, says it to I me all the time. How I had sorry. My dad says it to me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I hope in in better context. Yeah, yeah. He um, just I, I made him read the novel because I was so enthusiastic about it when I was a kid, and and he really liked it as well. So it's just uh, yeah. <laughs> I had forgotten how omnipresent that is in the novel. I mean, I, I didn't make the count. According to Wikipedia, it pops up 106 times wow. throughout the novel. Uh, but I just underlined a couple of couple of <laughs> very telling uses of those three words because it starts out as this very bleak, you know, literary scholar might say, light motif of of death and dying. And the, the more often you read it, the more you realize, well, leitmotiv is one thing, but it's really a running gag and a very, really a terrific running joke that goes through that because not only does he use it to talk about the casualties of Dresden, uh, about biblical judgment day, or about the, again, very funny and not so funny death of Billy's wife, 
He also uses it, for instance, to talk about the family dog dying. He mm -hmm. uses so it goes to talk about champagne that has gone stale, <laughs> where there's no pop anymore. He uses it for a, a little postmodernist excursion into the question whether the novel is dead or not. <laughs> <laughs> and so death, of course, becomes kind of the, you know, loaded with symbolic significance and of course also a little bit stripped of the horror because it's put into juxtaposition with these fundamentally banal episodes yeah. of death which isn't quite death it it, it it serves a very strange function in that respect because it, it I, I suppose it's a it's a great illustration of the way absurdism works in the way that you were just talking about that if you if you insist on saying so it goes when thousands of you know tens of thousands of people are incinerated uh in a war uh, and a city is destroyed but also saying it when a when a bottle of champagne has gone flat then you know there's something fundamentally uh, at a literal level just unethical at minimum about that but also the the different the, the repetition because it's so many times and so many different types of death as you've elaborated it does actually in a kind of paradoxical way force you to look at those moments it forces you to look at that in my in my reading of it anyway it forces you to look at that mass murder and and think something about it and pay attention to this moment stuck in amber as the Tralfamadorians talk about it and 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 puzzle something important out of it which i think is one of the things so this one of the things that I, is important to this novel, and I think probably the only good thing I said in that presentation I gave as a master's degree student was that Vonnegut is really interested in this novel in asking people to look and listen, to look at and listen to the story that he's telling and the moments that he's presenting. And the, the main narrative starts with listen Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. And this listen gets repeated four or five times through the novel. And he also says, look a few times. And he also insists on asserting his own presence during the war story. So the author of the novel doesn't appear in Billy Pilgrim's life outside of the POW situation. But he he occurs three or four times where he just asserts his presence in a in a short sentence. That was that was I. I was here. He says on page sixty seven in my edition. He says it again on page one hundred and twenty five in my edition, and he says it again a couple times later. Yeah, where he's on the on the latrine yeah. next to Billy, shitting his guts out. There they go. There they go. His brains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. First, the brains don't go, and then, of course, they follow, which kind of, you know, <laughs> puts, a, uh, puts a bad angle on the book. This was written by someone who had no brains yeah. left, right? Um, if, if you just put this in front of me on paper and said, this is a kind of, this is a, a postmodern attempt to come to terms with the trauma of Dresden, where the author inserts himself into the novel for a few telling cameos, kind of deconstructs the idea of storytelling and sense making. If, if you just sold the novel to me with that description, 
I'd probably be horrified. Yeah, you wouldn't, wouldn't want to read it, be, would you? You, you know, I, I, <laughs> I wouldn't want to read it, right? But the thing is, he does it in such a great and playful manner, right? It's it's such a funny and also very moving book because it's not to, to use a, to use a vonnegut phrase. It's not literature that disappears up its own asshole. <laughs> His words, not mine. It's still, you know, it, it, it wears its heart on its sleeve in a way, mm-hmm. but without formulating anything any 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 gospel any message that you would have to underline and use as takeaway besides the you know besides so it goes which reoccurs so many times throughout that book i was still wondering about the role of these cameos because Mm -hmm. billy pilgrim is of course an author substitute on on a number of levels so i'm not quite sure why vonnegut does that why he still reinserts his presence with these little you know almost hitchcock cameos where he waves at you from two or three pages throughout the book particularly because it's such a postmodern signature these days where you go, all right, so, you know, Paul Auster signed that book, Paul Auster was here, or, you know, Zadie Smith does it, and, and a couple of other authors will do that as well. Well, yeah, and and, and here it's it's even preceded by this, this chapter that has nothing to do with the plot per se of the novel, right, that we talked about at the start, where that's just this um, autobiographical meditation on trying to get the book written. I mean, to me, those moments are, are. I guess there's maybe two things that they're doing in, from my point of view. One is this issue of witness, that he's asserting himself as an eyewitness to events that need to be discussed and understood and and made sense of or put in an order that allows us to see them like the, like the mountain range of time that Chalfamadorian's experience. And part of it is about insisting on the importance of what has happened by, by being that, that person who was there. And I, I think it's, it's also about in a, in a less outward looking way, it's about Vonnegut as an author reminding himself of what he's doing, reminding himself that that. So I think of this on this last read through of this novel. I really thought of Mary O'Hare as as the kind of ethical, moral viewpoint of this novel because she comes out with this thing like you're going to write a John Wayne novel, and then they they come to a piece together. They they kind of come to an understanding, and then, and then every time there was a there was a moment in this novel that undercut that John Wayne narrative or showed the emptiness of those John Wayne narratives. I, I, I just wrote in my notes, Mary O'Hare, Mary O'Hare. She, she kind of cast mm-hmm, this thing mm-hmm. and it's, it feels a little bit like those moments of that was me. That was the author of this book or I was here. I was there is, is about him putting a marker down almost in not directly in homage to Mary O'Hare or anything like that, but like it's a, it's a, it's a touch point for reminding that this is, this is that kind of story. This is a story about people who don't know what they're doing in a terrible situation that has to be told this way because I was there. Interestingly enough, I um, I recently moved house and I, so I was unpacking all of my books. And one of the ones I pulled out was Armageddon in Retrospect, which is a posthumous collection of, of Vonnegut's writing and includes a letter that he wrote home after he'd been liberated from the POW camp and was um, fairly close to being repatriated, he wrote this three-page letter home that describes his experience in, uh, at the end of the war in Dresden and everything. And it's really interesting to read 
alongside Slaughterhouse Five for the obvious reason that that it's it's a closer to the moment account, and it reads really similarly to a lot of the to a lot of the passages of the war in this novel. Very plain prose, very simple, straightforward sentences that don't draw don't draw a lot of um, I suppose moral out of anything that's going on are just interested in saying this is what happened, this is what happened, this is what happened. There's a bit of of gallows humor in them and everything as well, and and those those sentences. I mean, they sound like the same guy, the same young guy that wrote that letter, even though he's a he's an you know twenty years, twenty five years older at the point that he's writing this novel. I'm not sure whether that's the same text, but Armageddon in retrospect also includes like a 10-page actual first-person account of, of what happened, wailing in all the streets, right? Is that the letter you were talking about? Because I, I believe that... Yeah, that's that's the, that's the an essay in the same collection. Yeah, the letter comes before that. So they're, they're not the same thing, but they're, yeah, part of the same collection. It's interesting he would he would hold that back. He would not include that in the novel. I think it's now included in some of the more contemporary editions or the, the anniversary edition comes with that letter and with part of that. But to come back to that, you know, cameo conundrum and the you know the problem of inserting the authorial presence into the novel, there are two very <laughs> wildly incompatible impulses underlying that book. One is to be very immediate. Uh, about the Dresden experience and to really remind readers of what happened. And the other impulse is to put as much distance as he can mm -hmm. between himself and what happened there. And you end up with that, you know, with these, these two weird antithetical movements, right? Away from it and towards it, which might also account for the chronology of the book. We haven't even talked yet about the <laughs> another instance of immediacy or immediacy and that's of course Kilgore Trout right which is also I suppose a kind of alter ego for Vonnegut that he keeps coming back to of course you know when 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 an author character is included in a <laughs> post-World War II novel right <laughs> we're always uh, sometimes too quick to suspect authorial co-presence uh, of some sort yeah, yeah. but there certainly are overtones of Vonnegut himself in Kilgore Trout And also maybe Kilgore Trout is the one element that really binds this back to, I don't know, is there something like the Kurt Vonnegut extended cinematic or non-cinematic universe? Yeah. <laughs> maybe there is. But that's 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 exactly how I started thinking about it when I was when I was thinking about all these characters, not just Kilgore Trout, but Elliot Rosewater and Howard Campbell and uh, Rumford, all these guys and the Tralfamadorians, all these people who appear elsewhere. Um, I started thinking about it as the extended cinematic universe myself. I suppose it is. There's a lot of films of Kurt Vonnegut novels, as you mentioned. Yeah, but at the same time, I believe I didn't reread all the no all the novels. They're, they're not quite compatible with one another. I mean, no. Kilgore Trout often changes in in you know appearance where he where he's based and and what he does. He's usually introduced as an author of really really unsuccessful novels, but hundreds of them. I mean, in, in ways that that's the the, the creed of genre fiction, <laughs> because yeah. uh, Kilgore Trout is also an excuse for Vonnegut to to you know come to terms with that being a science fiction writer, which immediately kind of excuses you from the uh, from literary highbrow and from being yeah. taken seriously by the critics. So that's also one of the reasons. Well, there's the why scene. There's the scene in sorry. There's the scene in Slaughterhouse Five where Billy goes into a um, peep show and then is poking around in the porn shop mm -hmm. um, that's connected to the peep show. And they've got Kilgore Trout novels in the window to make themselves look 
a little bit legitimate. And then he wants to buy them and they think he's a pervert for not buying the porn, but buying these unsuccessful <laughs> science fiction novels instead. <laughs> Possibly a comment. Like the, <laughs> yeah, it's like the proverbial guy who who has a subscription for Playboy magazine because he appreciates yeah. the, the the interviews and the in depth reporting. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, um, that, that's also one of the reasons why Slaughterhouse Five is always the odd one out when you look at at uh, you know World War Two literature, particularly in Dresden. Mm -hmm. And as you may or may not know, I'm based in Dresden. I live here, and of course, memory culture surrounding the bombing of 1945 is a big thing here. And so you you often have public talks, public discussions, or literary classes about the representation of February thirteenth, nineteen forty five, in in the arts, in literature, and so on. And I've talked to to people who are very well versed in that and well read, and they know more conventional representations of that. And when you probe them about Slaughterhouse Five, it's always like that's the odd one with the with the Martians coming or something like that, mm -hmm. which is a, a rather inaccurate, but also, of course, understandable summary of Slaughterhouse-Five. And it kind of, it's a wonderful trick that Vonnegut plays on the readers because it kind of excuses him from the discussion. Again, the jester argument, right? The, the, the fool has a certain privilege because people kind of suspect he's mad and he's not to be taken seriously. And that kind of allows him to, to be more fresh, to be more insightful on a certain level. And I think this is also true of Slaughterhouse-Five in a way, because if you know a superficial reading or superficial glance of the description of the book will make you think, okay, so it's a weird genre novel of some kind. It features a porn star, it features uh, a different planet that the author made up, uh, and it features all kinds of other silly devices. Uh, so I you know, maybe not include this in the literary canon for one reason or another. And of course, that's the exactly right call and the wrong call to make at the same time because it means the novel can, can endure on its own terms and maybe that's the reason why we're still talking about it outside the narrow confines of literary studies class yeah i was, I was thinking as you said that and it's, it's why we're still talking about it outside those confines it's also why it doesn't find its way into the school curriculum too often there's there's a wonderful moment in the novel where where they talk about how they how they read novels on Trelfamador. So there isn't any particular relationship between the, the messages, except that the author has chosen them carefully so that when seen all at once, they produce an image of life that is beautiful and surprising and deep. There's no beginning, no middle, no end, no suspense, no moral, no causes, no effects. What we love in our books are the depths of many marvelous moments seen all at one time, which is an extraordinary thing to put in the middle of your own novel mm -hmm. <laughs> that is trying to accomplish that very task. And you, I, I cannot imagine Kurt Vonnegut being so confident in what he was doing that he said, this is what I'm doing. It was more, it's almost like he wrote that to himself. Like, this is what you're trying to achieve. Keep your eyes on the prize. And I think as you've implied there, he, he achieves it, you know, He's created this wonderful moment in this novel that that we want to keep going back and looking at again because because we want to see it all at once and it is beautiful and deep and and difficult to to get comprehend at the same time. I was just uh, I was just uh, thinking about that and I think you're absolutely right. Yes, he he pulls that off. He succeeds with that. Kind of makes you wonder why why people still try to you know adopt the novel because it exists so perfectly in its own you know mediality but still there's a film adaptation there's opera adaptations and so on and so forth i was thinking about Roland weary again uh, the yeah. minor character that we haven't talked about yet because he's i think the 
the the the the one who's farthest away furthest away from this kind of insight that billy pilgrim is privy to the idea of looking at life in the Trelthamadorian way roland weary is the one i think uh, who is most driven and in a way uh, most polluted by the john wayne narrative of complete linearity mm-hmm of working towards the goal of this teleological idea of, you know, looking at war as something that makes sense. And of course, he's also in a way led astray by the narratives in his head, right? If you think of the Three Musketeers fantasy, which is a really heartbreaking episode, right? Because he's, he's you know, behind enemy lines with these two comrades thinking of themselves as this really successful trio course they have no idea what he's talking about and that fantasy immediately collapses i mean all the old narratives yeah. all the war narratives all the adventure stories they're on their way out i don't think vonnegut really condemns them i just think he really no. characterized them as entirely inappropriate for you know talking about war and a world war in the middle of the 20th century he says this about this is about roland weary he was so hot and bundled up in fact that he had no sense of danger he's, he's wearing loads of clothes wrapped around him Uh, His vision of the outside world was limited to what he could see through a narrow slit between the rim of his helmet and his scarf from home, which concealed his baby face from the bridge of his nose on down. He was so snug in there that he was able to pretend that he was safe at home, having survived the war, and that he was telling his parents and his sister a true war story, whereas the true war story was still going on. It goes, and then he goes into this Three Musketeers story that you just talked about. He's got that, it's a similar moment to that um, Tralfamadorian image of Billy Pilgrim's view of time being strapped to this, in this railway car with a pipe over his face. He can only see this little bit of a story and he thinks the little bit of the story is true. And he's convinced himself in Roland Weary's case, he's created this imaginative world in which his version of events is true. Um, But the real thing is happening all around him in a way that he can't see because he's not looking at the moments themselves. Mm-hmm. I think when I when I read the novel for the first time, one of the things I would have underlined a couple of times is the the little motto uh, that Billy Pilgrim finds for himself, which is again resonates one or two, two two or three times throughout the book. That inscription, "May God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom always to tell the difference." I don't think t- twenty years ago I, I did not yet appreciate the actual punchline of that statement, which is ultimately. Um, the novel suggests there is nothing you can change, right? Because it's it's all written down because you have to accept it in order to make sense of it, which sounds very defeatist. I don't think Vonnegut meant it to be like that, but it certainly offers a more bleak outlook now than it did 20 years ago. And well, can yeah. I talk about you know my take on that? <laughs> there's there's a lot of things in this novel. So it goes is one of them that that feel sometimes or the the Tralfamadorian time that feel at first defeatist. And I think teeter on the edge of being defeatist, except that the keeping going is is part of not being defeated by it. I guess the first time that he comes across that message, it immediately says, among the things Billy Pilgrim could not change were the past, the present, and the future. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, which is both, I mean, it is funny, but it's also so depressing. <laughs> yeah. But it's also true. In a way, nothing is more depressing than Vonnegut himself talking about the book, interestingly, uh, because uh, there's this novel, which you probably also know, Palm Sunday. It's it's not an autobiography mm-hmm. in the in a strictest sense of the word, but it's probably the, the, the one book that comes closest uh, to an autobiography. It's like basically a, a compilation of various biographical writings, speeches that Vonnegut gave over the years. 
couple of essays, interviews. And, and one thing that really struck me as I was reading through that one again is the I wouldn't call Slaughterhouse Five a cynical novel, but there's a cynical statement he gave when an interviewer asked him about, you know, what, what the Dresden experience ultimately amounted to for him. And Vonnegut says, "Well, I was the only person that actually benefited from the Dresden firebombing because I got three dollars out of it for each person that was killed." And again, maybe that's a punchline taken too far here. I wouldn't say it's it's, it's taken too far, mm. but. Anyway, it, 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 to me, it suggests that even having written that book, it, it, it's not a healing experience for Vonnegut. It's no. not something that you ever overcome and you know get out of your system by simply writing the book, making a success story of it. Uh, it's something that you carry with you, right? Yeah. Well, he, as as someone says early in the novel, you know, you can write an anti-war novel. You might as well write an anti-glacier novel. That's part of that. That's part of that way of thinking about it isn't it it's 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 not going to change anything it's not going to make you feel better a novel doesn't make you feel better necessarily but it's in a, mm-hmm. writing it anyway um but it's but it's a necessary experience he gives us a hint of what the novel that might make us feel better would look like and that's that one oft quoted paragraph in the book where billy pilgrim is watching a war film on television and he becomes slightly unstuck in time i think the narrator says and he sees the whole documentary backwards and of course it's then the kernel for for amos's book time's arrow where you see you don't see the 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 planes dropping the uh, dropping bombs on the town what you see is the bombers shrinking the fires you see them uh, gathering the fires in steel containers and putting them back in their bellies as he puts it mm-hmm. and you see the germans on the ground using devices to suck fragments from the planes and healing them again and you see the planes safely landing and the war result being resolved peacefully and so on and so forth which of course martin amos only uses and stretches to 200 pages as far as i'm concerned but that's mm-hmm. yeah. so brilliantly yeah <laughs> That's not a novel that makes you feel better either. Yeah, it's not a novel that makes you feel better at Time Zero. (laughs) (laughs) No, but that's only because we've been spoiled by linearity all our lives, right? We know how to read this uh, realistically and accordingly then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the novel now in my description sounds more bleak and depressing than it actually is. I would still say it is maybe not life-affirming, but it still finds a way of, you know, putting this into – not not so much a coherent story, but a story that you know insists on moving on, maybe out mm-hmm. of desperation, which again is part of the absurd condition. Also with poetic grace notes, which again I had totally forgotten about. I'm sure I had a, I had a ball twenty years ago when I read that, looking for you know the jokes and some of the more obvious satirical references. And I was really touched by also some of the poetic light touches he puts mm-hmm. in there. You said very correctly. The prose is rather simple. It's rather, you know, stripped back in a way. But there's always these little poetic observations, metaphors that I had no idea Vonnegut put in that book, you know, talking about the the German soldiers having teeth like piano keys. Um, mm-hmm. He talks about, I think at one point he likens Montana Wildhack's body to the architecture of Dresden, which is an interesting <laughs> and borderline erotic observation, which sits oddly, but then again, not so oddly in a novel that's stuffed with oddities. And the one thing that actually I, I, I underlined this time and thought that's again a, a neat a neat summary of an author's career when Kilgotraud talks about never selling his books, uh, he uses the line, "All these years I've been opening the window and making love to the world," which again, <laughs> a great assessment um, of the writerly process. 
Yeah, and a, and a great assessment of how Vonnegut approached his 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 work and his life, I think, and and how this novel finishes. I mean, as you say, it's it's a it's a very poetic novel, despite being very simply written. And I'm not going to read the last page of the novel because if I mean, we've we've, I think it's hard to have spoilers in this novel exactly. But at the same time, if people are listening to this and haven't read it, I don't want to ruin the end of the novel. But it it this matter of fact telling of the war story ends up amounting to something really moving at the end, I think, and and also offers that that grain or that image of. I wouldn't say hope necessarily, but of of something like peace, of something like understanding, or or I don't know. There's there's probably another word I can find, but I'm I'm struggling to think of it. Um, but there's there's it's not a, it's not a depressing novel in the way that I mean there's things that are in it that are horrifying and depressing, but it's not ultimately its message or or its its tone is not one of you know give up. It's not that nihilism that I was pointing towards as a, as a potential pitfall earlier on. It's a, it's a really beautiful and, you know, all these things, all moving, funny, uh, novel. Mm -hmm. There's, there's one word in literary discussions, which always gets bandied about and maybe used too often, but we, we, we always talk about important books or books that mean the world to us as influential, right? Mm. Uh, in a way, it's a very, that doesn't say much because you can neither prove nor really disprove <laughs> influence, right? We can always talk about, you know, the impact that Slaughterhouse Five of Wonnegut had on us when we were 15 or 17 and how this led on to, to other literary experiences. You cannot really prove nor disprove to what extent Vonnegut influenced uh, other authors of war novels that came after him. But I would actually use the word influential in, in the context of Vonnegut because you can immediately think of a number of books that very obviously used Slaughterhouse Five as a, as a you know, maybe not as a stepping stone, but certainly as you know a kind of innovative approach to how things could be done. Looking at things in a different way, you know, taking something that's fundamental and depressing or apocalyptic or whatever, and tweaking it with a very twisted sense of humor. Uh, I think a lot of that dates back to Vonnegut. I was thinking about one motif in the history of literature, which I'm not sure actually, but maybe you have an idea about that, may or may not start with Vonnegut. And that's the idea, which actually I wouldn't isn't connected to one of the war episodes in the novel, but to the uh, passing of Billy Pilgrim's wife, Valencia. Um, mm -hmm. That's again an, an episode that we haven't discussed yet because uh, Billy's involved in a plane crash and his wife hears about that. That's years and years, of course, after the end of World War II. Uh, and she rushes to him. He's one of the one of two survivors and she never makes it to the hospital or, well, she actually makes it to the hospital, but she's dead because she's involved in a car accident on the way to the hospital and then uh, there's something wrong with the exhaust pipe of her car. And by the time she arrives in the parking spot <laughs> in front of the hospital, uh, the carbon monoxide has actually killed her. And that very, again, bleak, almost cynical, but ultimately also quite funny episode, to me, resonates with a couple of anti-war novels and anti-war films uh, that came later, which kind of established the idea or toy with the idea that the big confrontation is over you believe the danger is all gone and then something happens which is really banal which comes mm. out of the ordinary and then suddenly takes the protagonist away from you i was trying to link this to to other literary precursors the closest i came was 
all quiet on the Western Front, which is having a bit of a, a moment again right now in Germany because there's a new adaptation of that one out. Uh, and again, all quiet on the Western Front, of course, concludes with this very short matter-of-fact paragraph at the end, which just informs you that the main character of the novel died when war was practically over, right? Vonnegut, I think, popularized that trope in a way because it pops up so many times later on. It is in war movies, which are always anti-war movies to a certain degree, but of course also not anti-war at the same time. Uh, again, very matter-of-factly and as absurd as anything that's in Slaughterhouse-Five, I guess. Yeah, I'm, I was while you were talking, I was trying to think of a of a precedent before Vonnegut, and I can't, but I I, I feel uneasy that that would be the that he's the not the inventor of it necessarily, but that that he really is the the ur text of this or something. Mm-hmm. I, um, yeah. I really don't know, but it's an inter- I hadn't thought of that before. Um, or again, you could link this to Edgar Derby. I mean, I was only talking about the, yeah. the, the, the wife novel, but of course, Edgar Derby mm-hmm. is shot over nothing practically yeah, when you think like the danger teapot. has been averted. Yeah, yeah. But you're right; it is it is a kind of pervasive thing in these types of texts and films these days. Kurt Vonnegut, he's responsible for everything. I think that's the lesson we take away from today. <laughs> um, Not bad for an old fart with his palmels. <laughs> Yeah, and his and, and his breath that tastes of mustard gas and um, what is it he says? Uh, uh, his his breath when he drinks smells of is it dead roses and mustard. Yeah, like yeah. roses and mustard gas, um, which is also the smell that comes out of the earth after the bombing. Um, one yeah, of those literary yeah, motifs a that. Of times. Um, listen, uh, thank you very much for joining me um, to discuss. Slaughterhouse Five. It's been a really fun conversation. I would like to remind listeners that the American Centrum Hamburg has also organized a virtual Vonnegut celebration via Zoom on the 19th of November from 6 p.m. to 7:30 p.m. Central European time. It will be hosted by today's guest on the Novel Romantics podcast, Dr. Vilan Schwanebeck, um, and will feature a specialist panel including Vonnegut biographer Charles J. Shields, who might be actually. Um, a very good person to probe into some of the things that we kind of <laughs> were reluctant to pronounce on today, and also Jan Christian Peterson. So um, if you would like to learn even more about Vonnegut, uh, and presumably also about Slaughterhouse-Five, please register for the virtual event via the America Centrum website. That's americacentrum.de, americacentrum.de. The registration information can also be found in the podcast description. I just want to once again thank my guest today, Dr. Vilan Schwanebeck for joining me for a really, really fun and interesting conversation. Thanks very much. Thank you, Doc. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.